Good to see you. Thank you for being here and joining us for this morning's service. And I also want to greet our live stream audience. Thank you for taking time out of your Sunday uh, to sit with us for these few minutes. I hope that you will stay tuned. If you're listening right now and have any thought of disconnecting over the next 40 minutes, don't. <laughs> I, I am just as serious as I can be because of the things that I need to share and uh, have to share in this last message. Of course, that goes for all of us, really. We want to put import on the Word of God. We have been in a series called Metaneo. And today is number five in that series. And I've entitled it, Must We Confess Our Sin to Be Forgiven? Throughout this series, our desire has been to help you think critically. Nothing is gained by just accepting something that's said or believing something you've read without thinking about it, processing it critically, comparing it, studying it, listening to other voices, being sure you understand what the intent of the writer was in the Bible. Even Andy Stanley. How many of you know Andy? You've heard of, if you don't know his, uh, you, if you don't know Andy, you probably know his father Charles, Charles Stanley, great Baptist preacher down in Atlanta, Georgia, who's had a church for decades, great church, comes from the Baptist tradition, and then his son, after running the ministry effectively for him for decades, left his dad Charles, started his own church, and that church has become even larger and far-reaching uh, than his dad's church. Andy hails from the Baptist tradition. I'm not sure what he would consider himself denominationally today, perhaps non-denominational community, I don't know. But, but suffice to say, a Andy is one of the most conservative voices in the body of Christ today on the Bible and theology and the like. And even Andy has been criticized and branded a heretic for daring to question the common assumptions Christians have today about how we read our Bibles and how we interact with them. So I feel like I'm in good company. I'm not trying to be criticized. I'm not trying to, as I said in my last message, I'm not trying to say things to wow you or to stir the pot. I truly want you to think critically and then my goal is that every one of us would have a manifest closer walk, more passionate walk with Jesus that's really transformational in our lives every day. I have some prepared reflections based on the things that I shared in my last message that I'm very aware have caused questions. So I just decided I would write my words and share them with you before we actually get into our text for this morning's subject. Much of what the Western church has believed for 500 years about the cross, Jesus' death, resurrection, forgiveness, hell, and living a good Christian life has been based on the theory of atonement introduced by a career lawyer turned preacher named John Calvin. He introduced the theory of penal substitution back in the 1500s prior to which neither the historical church or a single church father believed or practiced. Following that, Jonathan Edwards in the mid-1700s, one of the church's most prolific holiness preachers, preached a sermon called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God that by all standards is one of the most well-known, widely imitated, and influential sermons affecting present-day views on God's wrath, on his punishment of sin, and on our eternal destination and the eternal destination of those who do not accept Christ, 
that being hell in his view. Why is this so important that we understand, that we, that we take time on a Sunday morning with mixed company who came to be lifted up and encouraged and to hear a good solid Bible message? Why, why would we spend time on such doctrine and, and theology? Well, we, we have a propensity as human beings, and, and I would dare say we, we're, we do this worse as Christians, as believers, for labeling anything that we don't understand as wrong. If we don't understand it, if it's new, if we've never thought that way before, then it must be wrong. If it differs from the way that we were taught the Bible or from the way we read our Bible, then feelings can get very intense. Labels like deception or he's in heresy easily form on our lips. I reject such labels as representative of a careful, well-studied, faithful representation of the Holy Spirit leading us into all truths. There will be individuals who feel that the statements that I made in my last message, part three, Nina preached part four last week, bring into question the integrity of the entire Bible and cause it to be untrustworthy. Listen to me carefully. I'm going to repeat that. There will be individuals who feel that some of the statements I made in my last message bring into question the integrity of the entire Bible and cause it to be untrustworthy. I want to affirm the following with a promise to conduct an entire series of messages on the subject of inerrancy and and the infallibility of scriptures at a future date soon. Number one, the entire Bible is the inspired word of God. In its original writing, it is inspired, it is infallible, and it is inerrant. Number two, the challenge that we encounter today is the issue of translation and interpretive premise. I thoroughly demonstrated one such example of both of those issues with a passage of verses from Isaiah chapter 53 in my last message. Neither the, number four, neither the King James translation of the Bible or any other translation is exclusively the, quote, word of God, end quote. No translation of the Bible you can hold in your hands today is perfect, inerrant, or infallible. While this collection of 66 books called the Bible is not itself perfect, it perfectly points us to the one who is Jesus Christ, our precious Lord and Savior. Remember Jesus' words. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life and it is they that bear witness of me. John chapter five. Number six, when we think the word of God, when we think of the word of God or think word of God, we must not think first about our Bible. We must think first about Jesus. He is the logos of God that became flesh, John chapter 1. He is the living word of God. The Bible is not, or excuse me, the Bible is the word of God in a secondary way, one which is meant to point us to Jesus. No translation of our precious Bible is the way, the truth, and the life. Only Jesus Christ holds that title. To place the translation of scripture on an equal level as the risen Christ is a substitute. It's idolatry. The Trinity is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, not Father, Son, and Holy Bible. That's an important distinction. And finally, I reject the flat reading of the Bible. What do I mean? 
This is a concept of reading the Bible in a manner that assumes every passage and every individual verse of the Bible is true and has equal relevance, weight, and authority and literalness. Let me give you an example. In Job chapter 1 and verse 21, Job said, The Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. Lots of false doctrine has been taught on that one verse. Now, that is truly stated that Job said that, but it is not true. You cannot give that verse in the Old Testament equal weight with the revelation of Jesus Christ, his forgiveness, his resurrection, his atoning blood that was shed on the cross for us. You can't. Let me give you another example. Let's fast forward. Let's bring it into the New Testament because after all, if Jesus said something, right? You know where I'm going? If Jesus said it, well, let's try this one. Matthew chapter 6, verse 15. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive you your sins. Now it's true Jesus said that. But that is not true post the cross. Death and burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ. He said that to a specific people. It meant a certain thing for them under the old covenant. And you cannot bring it over into the life of the new covenant Christian post the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So there's another example, even the words of Jesus, which cannot be read flat. And you understand what that means now. Let me define metanoia one more time, okay? Metanoia, and I have something in my pocket here that will allow me for our live stream audience to follow along. Metanoia, what does this mean? It's become synonymous with the word repentance, which is a fabricated word from the Latin meaning penance. Now religion has borrowed that and gotten a lot of mileage out of it. And it became repentance or to repent. This great word metanoah which describes God's design for our life, for life change, for abundance has nothing whatsoever to do with the common understanding of repentance. The common persuasive idea of to repent. In most religious circles, to repent has to do with feelings of sorrow, guilt, and shame. And metanoia has nothing to do with that. It has nothing to do with the process of brokenness wherein we go to the altar of God's holiness, we confess our sin, and we ask for forgiveness in a state of unworthiness. Nothing. And yet that's the way this word is taught. Rather, it comes from two Greek words, meaning number one, together with, and number two, the mind. Together with the mind. Or together with God's mind. It's a, it means a radical mind shift where we realize that God's thoughts towards us will elevate us to a place of knowing and understanding Him and His will for us. So, to repent or to metanoia means to put God at the center of my mind and think about myself like he thinks about me. Now, to our subject for today. Does 1 John chapter 1 verse 9 teach confession for forgiveness? Here's some assumptions. Must we confess our sins to be saved? Religion teaches us we do. Number two, does God require us to confess our sins to be forgiven? You've been taught that. <laughs> Even if you're not shaking your head. I've been there, done that, lived through that for so many decades of my upcoming in the, my upbringing, I should say, in, in uh, the denominational church, the Western church, I'll say that. And then going to Bible school, my years there in Bible school, as well as the first couple of decades of my preaching ministry. 
I taught that. And I taught it with an anointing. <laughs> and people got saved. And you know why? Because God honors his word. <clears throat> Are sins forgiven if not confessed? Number three. And number four, what happens if a Christian dies with unconfessed sin? If you've never asked yourself any one or all four of those questions, I'm not sure what planet you are on. Because these are common assumptions for the Western church. Now, do you understand when I say West, do you understand what I mean when I say Western church? I mean primarily America, first and foremost, but those nations which would constitute a western part of our planet that have taken what was originally an eastern Messiah and Bible and translated it, as John Calvin did, to interpret and to presume certain things upon it, that none of our Eastern brothers have ever believed, and I'm talking about the Eastern Church largely in the East part of the world, I'm talking about Anglicans, I'm talking about Lutherans, I'm talking about the, uh, church, the Orthodox Church of England, I'm talking about many of our other brothers, and we are so isolated from that that those of us who have grown up here in America and gone to church and Sunday school believe that everybody believes what we were taught, that everybody believes the Bible the way I do. And the fact is, there's a huge portion of the body of Christ that's never believed, for instance, in penal substitution that John Calvin introduced. All right, let's tie into the translation. Let's look at it together. 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 through 10. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you this eternal life. And pardon me, live stream audience, I forgot my protocol. That which was from the beginning, which have, we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. This is the message that we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and we do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. I'll also share with you at this point Romans chapter 10 verses 9 and 10. Actually, I think this is just verse 9. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Consider this from Titus chapter 3, first part of the verse. He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness. Not just works, good works. Not just works, Sunday school. Things we learned about the Bible. Things we began to do as Christians. 
in following God. He didn't save us because of any works we've done of righteousness, but according to his own mercy. Now, John's introduction to this chapter, chapter one, was not written as instruction primarily for Christians. It was written to the Gnostics. The Gnostics was a movement, a deception in his day, a heresy that was being preached. Here's two things the Gnostics held to and believed. Number one, that Jesus had not come in the flesh. And number two, that they had no sin. So, the Gnostics preached, and it was rising. It was a deception rising in the church at that time, and many were falling prey to it. Jesus didn't come in the flesh, and you don't have any personal sin. So, when John begins this letter, he doesn't begin it in the traditional way that he begins every other chapter of all three of his epistles. First John, second John, and third John. This chapter alone, he ties right into it with the Gnostic belief and says what he says here. Number one, that which was from the beginning, we have heard, we have seen with our eyes, we have touched with our hands. Could we go back to that? That which was from the beginning, that which we have heard, that which we have seen, that which we have looked upon, that which we have touched. What's he doing? You say Jesus didn't come physically? We're here to tell you we saw him. We touched him. We heard him. Thomas put his finger into the nail print. We know he came physically. We know he bodily lived on this earth. We know he's risen from the dead. And we testify to that. That's the first thing that John begins with. He's arguing with the Gnostics of his day. That's the context of this chapter. Next he says, concerning the word of life, this life was made manifest, in other words, visible. We can see it. It's not just a spiritual principle floating through the air. Jesus came physically to the earth. We saw him. We heard him. We touched him. We spent time with him. We ate with him even. Third, this eternal life was with the Father, but then came down to us and he was seen. We have fellowship with this life. Jesus, the Son of God. Now, we fast forward then. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar. Are you seeing he's still arguing? Because the Gnostics Number one, didn't believe that Jesus came physically to the earth. Number two, they didn't believe in personal sin. John says, we saw him, we talked to him, we touched him, we handled him, we ate with him. He was here and we testify that he's risen from the dead. And secondly, if you say you have no sin, you are deceived. If you say we do not sin, you make him to be a liar. End of chapter. Chapter 2, verse 1, he starts as all of the apostles did in writing their epistles, with beauty, with blessing, with encouragement, and with addressing the believers. Now, why is all of that important? Well, because, first of all, we're talking about fellowship here, not sonship. If we're going to apply this chapter at all, and verse 8, 9, and 10, which is the common chapter for building the doctrine of confessing our sins, then I'm here to tell you, even though this was an argument for and against the Gnostic belief, this is not dealing with sonship. This is dealing with fellowship, at most. You say, what's the difference? 
Your sonship was determined on the cross and in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. When he uttered, it is finished, he purchased your sonship. And for everybody that believes that and accepts that by faith, you are a child of God. And there's nothing you can do righteously, even a work of righteousness such as prayer or repentance or reading or any other work of righteousness that will get you forgiveness or get you sonship. He bought it. He gave it to you. If you believe it, it's yours. And you are forgiven of all sin, past, present, and future, automatically. Period. I don't know about you, that really, that sets me free to know that I don't have to work to be forgiven. Okay? Now, so what is the basis of being right with God? Look at this. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21. For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin. Why? That we might be made the righteousness of God in Christ. When were you made the righteousness of God in Christ? When Jesus became sin with your sin. Not when you prayed the prayer. Not when you started attending church. But that's what you've been taught. Here's another verse. I'm not sure. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus. Stop, stop. We need to read that out loud. Stand to your feet. Please, this is so important. I'm just going to engage you. Uh, live stream audience, I'm sorry if now you're looking overheads. Do your best, cameraman. Watch this. It is because of him that you are even in Christ Jesus. Even being in Jesus wasn't something you did. You say, well, then what's my part? Believe it. Could we read that first part again out loud? Everybody, ready? Read. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus. Continue. Who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. You may be seated. I just had to, I just had to engage you a little bit. Next. The word used in verse 9, confess, is the Greek word homologeo, which means to say the same thing as or to agree with. It isn't the word to confess or to tell. So what's the difference? One means if I'm confessing, then I'm informing God. I'm telling him, I'm confessing, I'm informing. And always from a place of brokenness, unworthiness, guilt, shame. But the other one simply means to agree with God, to acknowledge. Go back and consider the context of the argument. Chapter one is an argument against Gnostic belief. What did they believe? I don't have any sin. What does he say? He doesn't use the word to tell, to confess, like going to a confessional or getting on your knees and praying and telling God your sins. He uses the word in the Greek to agree with, to acknowledge. Beautiful, important difference. What's he saying? And it fits the context, dear ones, beautifully. If you say you have no sin, you're deceived. If you say we don't sin, then you make him a liar. However, if you just simply agree with God, not confess, not tell, acknowledge. Homo legeo. This same word is used by Paul in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, I believe it's the first chapter where he says, regarding unity, 
that all of you speak the same thing. It's the Greek word to agree. I want all of you to agree, homologeo. That's the way it's translated in the King James translation. When you look at the definition of it, I want all of you to speak the same thing. You see that the way to agreement or unity in the body is to speak the same thing. What an important translation of the word confess. So in metaneo, not repent, not penance, but in metaneo, we come before God, we remove all of the masks, we remove all the pretense, we don't come unworthy and beaten down and guilty and shamed, we come looking at the Christ and we say, God, I agree. Jesus died for me. I'm a sinner. Thank you for wiping that out, forgiving me completely and making me a new creation. And the Bible says, and here's the wording of it. It's beautiful. Here's the Greek idea to say the same thing about our sins as God does. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Listen, this is interpretive. If we acknowledge that we have sinned, if we agree with God that he has removed our sin and made us the righteousness of God, and we put our full confidence and trust in the blood of Jesus, which flows continually as eternal, once and all for all, forgiveness of sin, past, present, and future, then we enjoy the complete redemption of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are forgiven of all our sin. Oh my goodness. Now, to show you, just to illustrate, I have two Bible translations here. One called the Knox, excuse me, one called the New Testament uh, in English, but it's by Monsignor R.A. Knox. And then this one, more of you have probably heard of this. This is the New Testament in modern English, translated by J.B. Phillips, great theologian. I'm going to read first from Knox. This verse, John 1, 9. Sin is with us. If we deny that, we are cheating ourselves. It means that truth does not dwell in us. No, watch this. You listening? No, it is when we confess our sins that he forgives us of our sins. And is ever true to his word dealing with what is right and forgiving us. That's what I learned in Sunday school. That is a common mistake in translating that verse. This is J.B. Phillips. Now you can go through hundreds of translations and find these various meanings and so forth, but what you need to do is go back to the original languages and not just to a translation, most of which have been done after John Calvin's introduction of penal substitution. John chapter one and verse nine, and it's difficult to find some of this because of the way they, they write it in here, okay. But if we freely, watch this. If we refuse to admit that we are sinners, then we live in a world of illusion and truth becomes a stranger to us the Gnostics. You can accept anything then. But if we freely admit that we have sinned, we find God utterly reliable and straightforward. He forgives our sin and makes us thoroughly clean from it. How beautiful. Now, based on my study of Greek and the actual meaning of the words, I can tie into that. I can agree with that. I have a real problem with Knox's idea of repentance and confession. So, next, 
we find here that the word sins used in 1 John chapter 1 and verse 9 from Vine's Expository Dictionary of Greek Words. That word is harmatia. It means missing the mark. This is like when you have a bow and arrow and you're out in the field and you're target practicing and you pull back your arrow and you shoot, you release, and your arrow goes to the side and misses. You missed the mark. Now, it doesn't mean you're unworthy and wretched and what a worm and you should feel shame and guilt and all of that. You just, you missed the mark. You shot and missed the mark. We talked about this in my last message, how that there's a great deal of difference between the theology that sees all of humanity and God's, God's function, God's purpose in redemption as penal and punishment and so therefore Jesus comes and saves us from God, saves us from the wrath of God. And the very beautiful picture, both in Old and New Testaments, of a redeeming Savior who doesn't save us from the wrath of God, he simply comes in our place, becomes sin in our stead, and then God forgives sin in Christ. And it's done. It's a loving thing. It's not a wrathful thing. It's not a reaction to punishment. Jesus doesn't step in the way of a wrathful God and take our punishment. He comes. He was put on the cross by us, we learned in my last message. He was not put on the cross by my sin. He was, excuse me, by God's wrath. He was put on the cross by my sin, by your sin, by the Romans, by the system. If you really want to know what put Jesus on the cross, it was the law. There's a beautiful example of that in the Chronicles of Narnia. You remember Aslan? Who was Aslan? You remember the scene where uh, the, the wicked witch, if you will, I don't remember all the particular characters, and I'm going to butcher this, I'm sure, in trying to share it, but you remember the scene, if you've seen the movie, regarding the uh, Chronicles of Narnia, how that uh, the lion and the witch wind up being there with uh, who's the who's the character that's being uh, uh, the, the young character who they're going after. The, the witch wants that character. And Edward. Edward. Thank you. And so the witch really wants Edward, but, but Ans An Anselm, right? An Aslan steps in and says, no, I'll, I'll take his place, which is exactly what Jesus did. The thing is, when Aslam goes down on the, on the table and then all of history is changed and the price is paid and then he rises from the dead all a picture of Christ guess what happens to the table it breaks what did Jesus do in his death pictured by the veil the veil was rent, not from bottom to top, from top to bottom. Nobody could reach it except God, who rent it as a type of the law that put Jesus on the cross in the first place. It was my sin. It was the Roman Empire. It was religion that put Jesus on the table. God not only forgives our sin, he breaks the thing that put Jesus on the cross in the first place. He does away with the table. And here's what Paul writes in Colossians. Having nailed to his cross all of the laws, all of the requirements, all of that stuff that was against you, condemning you, he took it and he nailed it to the cross. And there it was broken. Wow. C.S. Lewis even C.S. Lewis was trying to tell us something that religion was rejecting. And they believed Calvin instead. The word used for sins, harmatia, means missing of the mark. It indicates a principle or source of action, a principle or source of action, or an inward element producing acts 
What are we saying? He's not talking about plural sins. He's talking about the sin of the universe that was introduced into the garden. He's talking about the source of sin. He's talking about the sin principle. He's talking about our sinful state inherited through who? Adam. As in Adam all die, so as in Christ all shall be made alive. He's not talking about the list of moral do's and don'ts. Verse 9, if you shall confess your sins, he's not talking about a moral list. He's talking about the sin nature. He's talking about the issue of sin, the principle of sin, the source of sin. And so by using the noun form of sin, instead of the verb, John was clearly not referring to committing acts of sin over which we need to daily go before the Lord and ask forgiveness for. He was talking about the sin that Jesus dealt with when he died on the cross and then rose again. And he smashed sin and everything written that was holding you guilty because of the law. So what if we miss confession? What if we miss confessing a sin? What if we die without confessing everything? Have you ever thought about that? I mean, if you have to confess your sins to be forgiven, and you die with unconfessed sin, have you ever considered that? What happens? Do you just not make it? <laughs> Dear ones, you don't have to believe everything I say or everything that I teach, but I do desire this. I desire that you think critically about things you think you've always known. I desire that you think critically and examine the Bible for yourself and study as you see me doing and be willing to challenge what you have accepted as age-old truth and realize most of what you believe you were taught and you were told from Sunday school forward. And how long has that been? 40 years? For some of you, maybe 20, 30, 40. For me, 50. I'm now 60. What is that compared to the 2,000 years of time since the church first was born after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus? Since our church fathers who wrote the New Testament lived and for the first 1,100 years of that beautiful history, never once taught that you had to confess your sins to be forgiven. Never once taught the idea, the theory of penal substitution. Here's one for you. I didn't even put this in, in my notes, so this will, this is, I believe the Holy Spirit just helping me remember this point. I never considered this. I never studied it. I never dare go against what was taught. But I challenge you to go home. Study the epistles of Paul. Study his writings. Find one place where Paul teaches that you need to confess your sins to be saved. Not once. And in fact, we've already been to it. Here's the great. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, by the way, it doesn't mean to tell him. It means to agree with. If you agree with your mouth that Jesus is your Lord, and you believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, what will happen? There's no mention of confessing your sins. I was told I had to confess my sins. But that entire doctrine was built primarily on 1 John chapter 1, 
without any interpretation, without any constructive criticism, without any looking at the Greek. I was just told that's the way it was. Okay. Have I given you something to think about today? Have I given you something to go home with? Can we lighten the mood a little bit because <laughs> I'm not sure looking at some of your faces whether you're ready to just, you know, call a meeting and, and have Jeff excommunicated or, or what your plan is here. But I am boldly going to deliver what I understand to be the truth and challenge you to study it on your own and test these things and test them by the Holy Spirit and see whether they be true. And please go back further. Please go back further than your modern translations or John Calvin of the 1500s or John Wesley, excuse me, Jonathan Edwards in his great sermon, and it is a great sermon. It is still an awesome sermon. I mean, if you want to come under fear and condemnation and, and you want to get on your knees crying out to God, sweating blood like bullets and, and, and crying out to God for his cleansing, read that sermon. You, you, it's, you know, Jonathan Edwards, 1750s, greatest sermon in the world, most think. Sinners in the hand or hands of an angry God. That's the title of the sermon. Sinners in the hands of an angry God. To which Brian Zahn wrote the response. The book, the beautiful book. Sinners in the hands of a loving God. I told you about the book two weeks ago. I hope you will get it and pick it up. Now, we're going to close with this. I watched an hour and a half debate between Brian Zahn, who I just mentioned to you, and a Hebrew scholar who at least he presents himself as a Hebrew scholar. John Master Giovanni, who I respect as a true Hebrew scholar, uh, does not think so at all. And oh, by the way, in response to my question, uh, John, what do you think of my teaching? He listened to my sermon from two weeks ago, and I said, what do you think? <laughs> you know, correct me, where, where am I wrong? He said, you know what, Jeff? I am so moved by what you taught and what you shared and our discussion about it. I am going to write another chapter in my next book on Melchizedek and include it dealing just with Isaiah chapter 53. And then he sat down, spent hours and hours writing the chapter and sent it to me. Isaiah chapter 53, word for word, literal translation of every word. And it compares beautifully with the way I taught it two weeks ago from a Hebrew scholar. The, the, the perspective of somebody who actually reads Hebrew, understands Hebrew, studies Hebrew, speak, can speak Hebrew. Okay. Now, so a supposed Hebrew scholar, somebody who's well known in Christian circles, and Brian Zahn are having an hour and a half debate on the subject of penal substitution. I'm so glad I listened all the way to the end. Now, this, this debate kept me up till 11.15 last night. I normally go to bed at 9 o'clock on, on Saturday night so that I can get up at 4 o'clock and be ready. So I tried to sneak in here this morning, and it was, as you know, I was helping Don, and he had three cups of coffee in his hands, and he was trying to open the door, and I helped him open the door, and that was about 5 after 10, so I was late. I plead guilty, but with good excuse. I'm so glad I listened to the end of this debate because I heard 60 seconds of something that in my view can change your life right now. What I just took 40 minutes to share, this might completely change your life in 60 seconds. Lights out, please play that clip. One of the pastoral problems with penal substitutionary atonement theory, because this is what it is, is that it repels people from Christianity. I say this as a pastor for the past 33 years. 
As recently as last weekend, a visitor to our church was speaking with my wife, following the service, and she said, well, you know, I'm a Buddhist, the visitor said, and my wife said, well, okay, whatever, but, you know, continue to come to church. Well, I'll come. I think I like some of this. I think I'm going to come, but I'm a Buddhist, and I could never be a Christian. Why could you not be a Christian? Because I don't believe in child sacrifice. I don't believe that God had to kill his son before he could forgive us, and my wife said, you know what? We don't believe that either, and most of the church has not believed that throughout most of its history. The Eastern Church has never believed it up to this very moment, and all of a sudden, Christianity's back on the table for this woman. She says, oh, well, maybe I need to rethink this. Powerful, isn't it? Here's the link to the debate. We'll leave it up long enough for you to write it down. Now, you have to ask yourself, if inside you're in any bit of turmoil over my original, yeah, I see people taking pictures, that's the best way to do it. Don't try to write out, just grab your phone and take a picture of it. Perfect. If you process now with me on one last thing, I began by saying that I take great exception to the common practice, especially among religious people, of branding anything we don't understand or that's different or not the way that we've read it before or heard it taught before as deception or heretical. Imagine, why would I, if I was operating in deception and heresy, and wanted to keep you in my own little point of view away from the truth of the Holy Scripture. Why would I give you a link to a debate by both sides? And, and this is not an easy debate. They go back and forth. It is kind. It is, it, it, it is respectful. But whew. They don't pull any punches, both of them. Penal substitution and punishment and all of that. So if if you come down on that side still, if after you listen to this debate, you feel like uh, Michael Brown has made his case, that's where you come down, it's not going to change anything about our relationship. I love you the same. You are welcome to continue to worship here and even be involved here. But if, as I have, you come down on the side that penal substitution is wrong, it was a theory introduced by John Calvin and should be ignored, and that there's a whole other world of understanding out there about the Bible and God's grace and the wonderful gift of forgiveness, then I, I would challenge you to listen to this debate in its fullness. I'd be happy to speak to you and go out to lunch or whatever afterwards and talk about your feelings and your thoughts. Okay? Amen. Let's stand.